Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. I'm happy to welcome Pateras Zalgavis on to the podcast. I'm lucky to be able to say that I've known you for some time now. I think the last time I saw you in person was in Dubai, back in the days when you could freely travel the world. Uh, looking forward to hopefully meeting again uh, in, in person at some point, but it's, it's great to have you uh, on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. So by way of introduction, there's quite a lot to pack in. Um, so I'll probably need at least five minutes to read out all the titles. But Head of Unit for Digital Innovation and Blockchain, the and blockchain bit was added in the last year. Digital Single Markets as Head of Unit Digital Single Market, DG Connect, co-chair or one half of the chair for the FinTech Task Force. You are Latvian born and originally trained as a barrister in California, but you also spent time as a visiting fellow in Oxford and uh, the World Bank. So you have a, a unique blend of kind of political science, law, capital markets. Did I get everything right there? I think so. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. All right. So I, I, I've known you in the context of being, you know, one of the more progressive and kind of open civil servants within Europe generally and within the European Commission, both to kind of talk to on a on a private level, but then also you know seeing you at conferences on stage and uh, in social media and, and Twitter. So I guess that's why you've earned the the additional plus blockchain in in your title over the last year. Did you ask for that, by the way, or was it just given to you because you you a deep deep de facto leader in the blockchain space? Well, within the European Commission, we obviously have uh, different policy areas and we have different areas of expertise. And so, for instance, in blockchain, we have the uh, colleagues who are in charge of the programming, the implementation of ICT in the so-called DG Digit. We have colleagues in the research part who do blue sky and applied research in blockchain. People in, for instance, the transport area apply blockchain to transport. But where I am, we are the leaders in overall blockchain policy and we're the coordinators. I'm also the chair of a competence network that we have across the EU Commission on um, blockchain. So making sure that what we do, we have a unified line to the outside world. I mean, we can have a lot of debates and experimentation internally um, and that we don't uh, confuse or um, give how to say, mixed signals to, to the outside. So this is why the, the blockchain policy is with me, though, I mean, this is drawing on all the competence in other parts of the European Commission and obviously in collaboration with the member states. Right. And so one of the things, as you know, this series is uh, founders of Web3. So we're primarily speaking to entrepreneurs and, of course, some of the, the investors that back them in those early days. But the reason why I wanted you on is because I think it's important to also look at uh, startups as a form of innovation 
and that interplay with regulators. And obviously, uh, regulation has been rightly or wrongly, or to what degree, the constraining factor in in blockchain and, and, and crypto. And so I think it's really important if you are an aspiring entrepreneur in this domain that you understand the perspective of regulators. And I think because I've had the good fortune of having slightly more direct relationships with a number of different regulators and policymakers, I also have found that there's a lot of misunderstanding or misinterpretation of any one given jurisdiction's attitude, sentiment, or, or approach. So, you know, hopefully we can give a, a, a voice, a consistent you know, a viewpoint on this space and also kind of get your perspective on what you think a kind of healthy dynamic between, you know, the entrepreneur and, and, and the regulator is, as well as, I guess, innovation from an enterprise perspective, because, of course, this isn't all about just entrepreneurs uh, building things in, in a silo and, and, and uh, gaining consumers. But before I go into that, I just wanted to understand, as I said, I, I find you very progressive in your thoughts and a good advocate, I couldn't think of a better advocate to, to have out there in, in, in the wild. And in a way, I think uh, as Hester Pierce is kind of looked at as crypto mom, uh, I would propose that you could be Europe's crypto pop. Um, <laughs> so so, so, so why, why is that for you as an individual? Is, it, is that born from your time in California and you know, exposure to Silicon Valley and the innovation that comes there? Or is it something in your roots from the Baltics? As I said, you're from Latvia and Latvia and places like Estonia are known as world leaders in, in kind of thinking about crypto and, and all the implications that has to sovereignty. So why, why are you doing what you do? What is the, what is the, the mix of the influence that, that kind of brings you to this role? Well, I mean, I have to say it's uh, unquestionably a, a mix, but overall the attitude of, of the European Commission right now is uh, very positive towards fintech and towards blockchain. I mean, it's a pro-innovation approach. Obviously, fraud is fraud in any domain, and that doesn't mean we were happy with that. And obviously, things like anti-money laundering or KYC in the fintech area with blockchain uh, need to be applied, but ideally in not a burdensome way. Um, now I have a, a new commissioner that I'm directly working for, Thierry Breton, but who's, who's French, and France is another country that has a, a very progressive uh, attitude towards central bank digital currencies right now. You see the, the experimentation they've launched on that. Um, but the, the other commissioner responsible, Vice President Dombrovskis from Latvia, from my country, um, who has and underlines a pro-innovation approach to so this is, is Latvian, so you see the, the Baltic link. Uh, we work a, a lot within the European Commission, and I'm also going back to my time in the Latvian civil service um, with the with the Estonian uh, neighbors. Um, Thomas Henrik Ilvis, the former president of uh, Estonia, who's active, I mean, even now in in the global hack, for instance, which my my unit in Startup Europe is supporting on the coronavirus, is is there. And then, I mean, obviously on all of us, or I mean, particularly on me, I, I spent a, a lot of years in California, um, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, where I got my, my bachelor's degree, my first degree before my law, law doctor degree, uh, doctor of law degree, um, was, you know, the place that the first email went from uh, to uh, to Stanford Research Institute. So, I mean, I've seen the Internet Museum there and uh, it gives away my age and, and had programming on punch cards, even though I was a, a political science major at that time. So, I mean, I think it's a mix, but I would say it's definitely the attitude 
of the European Commission that is that is open, is pro-innovation. Um, I'm flattered to hear that I may be uh, one of the people most exhibiting this kind of attitude. But I think an openness to the technology is something that uh, we have to have. And more than an openness, I mean, to really move forward with both the vision for it, with the investment, the money, and also a, a regulatory framework that fits. And then I would just perhaps finish by saying that uh, though it's still sometimes the image of if it moves regulated, I mean, we've been looking closely at blockchain, you know, not perhaps the very beginning, but at least 2012, 2013. And then it was along with FinTech, one of my major focuses when I went for a year to be a visiting fellow at, uh, at the University of Oxford at St. Anthony's College. And we have not moved to regulation until now. We've just closed the digital assets um, public consultation and now are looking, obviously subject to what the political leadership decides, but to see whether a directive or regulation is required on, you know, you could say the investment tokens, payment tokens, utility tokens. I mean, this is going a little bit ahead of myself. We, we haven't made such uh, final classifications yet. But I mean, on these questions, whether we need to align and perhaps have a legal framework. So we've really been letting the market work, seeing where there's problems, coming probably to the conclusion, as a lot of people have, that there is a need for more legal clarity, but really letting the, the market work and letting solutions um, be found or where they're not found, then only intervening to legislate. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is and this isn't just... Um unique to Europe, I guess, where a regulator has, um, in their minds, been fairly permissive by just letting the market do its thing. Within that, it has often created a kind of a vacuum where there is perhaps a lack of clarity. And often, I think that's been interpreted as negatively, um, rather than, as you say, it being perceived as pro-innovation, the idea that you're kind of letting the market form, observing, uh, to develop a better understanding about where it, it might be appropriate to legislate. So it would be good, maybe before we drill down into some of these specific initiatives that you mentioned, to help people understand in a European context anyway, to, to what extent are these decisions made and definitions uh, made at a, at a European level versus, uh, versus a nation state level? As you say, you know, France has certainly been saying all the right things, but that often is seen to be very different to say Portugal, which I think has done some interesting initiatives around more from a taxation perspective versus the UK versus versus Germany. So could you just explain like very simply how that works and then we could perhaps get into the meat of some of the, the legislation itself? Okay, now very simply, we, we have a treaty um, that the member states have chosen to pool their sovereignty in several areas, not all the areas. And uh, one of the areas that's uh, a major driver for European integration is the internal market. And in this case, if things are just flowing across borders historically, fine. There hasn't been a need to regulate. If it, things have been stopped across borders and then you go, go into the, the jurisprudence, I mean, you have cases like Cassis de Dijon, where uh, a type of alcohol was being stopped at the border because it didn't have a percentage. And instead of saying it needs to be labeled, uh, it was just being stopped. So you had cases and this legislation enacted to say, well, if this is 
beer in France than this is beer also in in Germany, a famous case German German beer related to to that. Um, so in the areas of the financial markets. Um, this has been one of the areas where we have had some of the best successes for our startups, the so-called unicorns, let's say in payments um, with TransferWise, Klarna, others. Um, partially, this has been due that we have the passporting on payments across borders. Um, also have payment services uh, directive to, to giving access to uh, also some of the banking data that's relevant which is a first kind of pro-competition item of legislation in this area. So the, the union ensures that goods, services, capital can move across borders. This is kind of another area where we're going to go to what's called an impact assessment, which is internally where we justify that something needs to be done before we do it. It's not just people, even when we decide uh, with the political hierarchy that we should do something that we just do it and it just happens. You have to show the justifications. And so in this case, for instance, we would be looking at whether the lack of legal clarity is impeding a business utilizing digital assets working across borders in the uh, 27 countries because of different definitions, different ways of registering what is a security, what isn't, um, what is the, uh, the payment token, what kind of uh, payment uh, regulation they come under or not. The same for the utility tokens. It's just something under e-commerce or is it also a security? So this this is a little bit the, the way that it works. And then finally, something it's always good to underline, though the civil servants do the analysis and, you know, a lot of the, the drafting. It's the political leadership who are politicians who take the decision whether to move with such a legislative proposal or not. So these are the, the commissioners and the vice presidents and right. president. And so this is where um, I guess this is where the digital single market comes in, uh, in terms of your function. So you're looking at a properly functioning, flowing market in the context, in the digital context. And whilst you have the fintech component to your work, um, one of the things that I've been really impressed by, both in terms of conversations I've had with you, but then also in the communications and activity at the European level is understanding blockchain and digital assets beyond just financial services and fintech. Um, so around data and data sovereignty and self-sovereignty. So it'd be great to understand a little bit more about that kind of slightly more expansive understanding because honestly, I mean, I've, I've not seen that in any other um, jurisdiction. I've not seen it in the US. I've not mm -hmm. seen it necessarily um, in, in parts of Asia. Um, so it'd be good to understand a little bit more about that. Okay, great. Well, I mean, that's a little bit in the design of the way that we set up our our structure. As I said, I'm in a part of the commission that's responsible for, for the digital single market. Obviously, I mean, if you go back historically in uh, ICT, the first mover in a lot of areas, not just with uh, blockchain and so on, um, in adopting ICT has been the financial sector. I mean, going back to the 90s, the 80s, even, even earlier. So, I mean, the history of our Directorate General has been involved with the financial industry as, as a first mover. But we're responsible for ICT policy, for digital policy across all sectors. We're not 
the programmers, but the policy people, the economists, lawyers, and you know some engineers and and programmers to keep us uh, down to earth in the actual uh, how to say uh, practicalities of things. Um, and then we've combined in the fintech task force with a co-chair coming from financial services, so they have a focus in their mandate and their job more on applying these emerging technologies to the financial services. But then we have research, transport, environment, climate change, and others in there as well, obviously, in a little bit less active position because this isn't a daily thing for them. So as part of my job, I mean, I started with, uh, you know, obviously started with the with the blockchain, I mean, the Bitcoin at the, at the very beginning. So, I mean, this is a, a financial or, you know, a, a cryptocurrency focus. Um, but then very quickly, we started thinking on the digital single market side, but how can this be applied to to other things? Is this a useful technology? I mean, this is also with AI, decentralized AI, IoT, et cetera. How can this be applied across across sectors? How what how can this be interesting for supply chain? How can it be interesting for data management? So that's why I and 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 we have this perspective. And I mean, I can also say very frankly, talking to people like you and others in the ecosystem, it's also inspiring. And I try to read a lot and talk to people a lot and see uh, what the entrepreneurs, what the investors, what also public sector innovators are doing across the union and across across the world. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we've been big advocates of what we called convergence for, for several years now, the idea that, you know, if you're looking at trying to understand the implications of blockchain, you need to look at it in combination with IoT and AI, really kind of forming this new data market. And um, so it was really interesting to see uh, the announcement. I'm trying to think, was it towards the end of last year that the IEF was making available, uh, I think it was 100 million euros as a cornerstone in a 400 million dollar, sorry, euro fund specifically for blockchain and AI. Exactly. And that was developed uh, by my unit along with colleagues primarily responsible for, for AI. And it was exactly in this same philosophy that we see those two technologies, and as you mentioned, also with IoT and possibly other emerging technologies coming together, both having a need for the data, for instance, AI, but also being able to process data for societal challenges, the one we have right now on a pandemic, um, but also the climate and, and others. And we see them coming together both as an investment need in Europe, but also as something that should be looked at, not always, because, of course, AI has aspects that go beyond uh, the interaction with with blockchain or IoT, um, but often should be looked at together and making sure that the legal frameworks we develop where necessary. I mentioned that we don't rush into things, but that these are also future-proofed. And so we don't have a situation where we develop something that sounds good to today and we rush in and then a year later or two years later, it's uh, it's obsolete. I mean, this is something we were, as I said, following the, the blockchain area, for instance, for years and years. You had things like the bit license in New York, which probably wasn't a, a good move. I think almost almost everybody <laughs> agrees agrees today. So sometimes being a first mover, especially in legislation, is not smart. It's good to to watch and work with the market. But at the same time, for for a civil service, a major civil service, it's good to try to to shape the market to make sure that it does have 
uh, the societal needs like the climate, like the now pandemics, which I think uh, many of us would say probably we were not aware of enough, though it was always in a lot of uh, a risk analysis frameworks. So um, that's a little bit of our role. Yeah, and I think that's what's been really interesting to see how Europe has been a leader looking at blockchain in the context of impact as well. So, you know, beyond that capital market component. So one of the ways I advocate for the approach taken within Europe, and by the way, I still class myself as a, as a European, even if it might be denied of me from a citizen's perspective as a, a, a philosophically, um, I'm, I'm a European. And of course, our business operates across Europe. Um, although we're headquartered out, out of the UK. But one of the things I've always advocated for in Europe's approach to this space is that going, going beyond you know, fintech and cryptocurrency and thinking about this as a, as a, a new stack of technologies, uh, that it, it offers almost a third way. So rather than it being Web3 in the context of an iteration of technologies, um, it could also be seen in the context of a, a third alternative to how, how the web could function and how it could be better aligned with users and citizens rather than shareholder supremacy. So, you know, if you look at um, the web as it is today, it's predominantly dominated by corporations from originating, at least from the West Coast, uh, driven by a very kind of strong form of libertarianism and free market fundamentalism. And then if you look at the alternative that's uh, emerged in the East, which is kind of, so, so in, in, in the West, extreme uh, in, in America, it's kind of surveillance capitalism as it's now been termed. And in the East, you have something which isn't servicing the supremacy of the, the shareholder, but the state. So you have like a form of digital statism where everything is subordinated to the state. And, and I've always felt that in Europe, we have a, a potential for a, th a third way, which is oriented more towards the citizen user. And I, I don't know if that is something that is explicitly or implicitly communicated or, or discussed at a European level. But I mean, clearly there are other initiatives to correct some of the failings of the web around monopolies that are formed, uh, security, privacy. Uh, so I'd be interested to know, you know, the, is, it, is that kind of framing relevant or am I, or am I just imagining it? No, I think that kind of framing is, is very relevant. I mean, I won't be pretending to be more technical than I am, but definitely in a, in a policy vision, it's something that we call a human-centric internet, a, a next-generation internet, one which in some ways coincides with the, the early vision, the early development of the internet, um, though the, the ARPANET came out of the Department of, uh, of the Defense. Um, then you had NSFNET. You had actually a fairly more protocol rather than now platforms um, run, run internet. So both to have more competition for consumer choice, citizen choice, which is always good. I mean, going to Schumpeterian economics of, uh, of created destruction, that there's a certain renewal of uh, the coetry of, of companies, of, uh, of those there. Um, but also to have a wider range of viewpoints, more technological experimentation, 
And this is where we, we do see, see the point also for um, development of artificial intelligence rather than having it very much centralized, having many different work networks working on a diverse set of quality data. Um, you get away from some of the implicit biases that you just might have if the data is only English or Italian or Indian or, or Chinese, et cetera, because, I mean, different data sets or, I mean, even within within a country, these might be all men or many more women or many more younger people. So we, we see this decentralization as something that can also drive the scientific development, the technological development, but also as possibly being a safety um, aspect for the artificial intelligence. Again, if it's not just centralized, that you have different models competing, um, that there is, again, not a domination that uh, if you do get a, a bad AI, I mean, I'm probably quite over-vulgarizing it now, um, but that you would have others that are run more ethically or on unbiased data and, and so on, but also having cooperation with them. So a little bit, that's the, the policy vision that it's centered for the individual. Obviously, we have platforms, we'll have platforms, welcome platforms, but also this, this protocol vision that there's a, a part of that that allows more new entrants. Also, as the startups people, obviously, we should be trying to make sure that new startups can still enter the market, that they can have access to data, which is a, a question, again, here, ensuring that there's not a uh, access up. Uh, how to say a barrier to entry uh, on access to data that doesn't allow new business models, which might satisfy the consumer better or might be more apt to finding a solution for a climate challenge or now a pandemic challenge. So this this is the philosophy and the driver behind what we do. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the beautiful thing about this connection with with blockchain and AI because. The problem that an AI startup has is that it can't access data. Therefore, there is uh, a barrier for it to enter the market. And that then leads to this over-centralization, over-monopolization within that competency. And so um, I think it's great to hear you, know, you guys making that connection. So you know, the way that I look at crypto assets or digital commodities. I increasingly like to refer to them as digital commodities, actually, if you're taking that protocol perspective um, versus platform perspective, how can you have something that can coordinate this, this new digital infrastructure? And, you know, for me, I think looking at these things as coordination mechanisms, incentive mechanisms to allow for this bootstrapping of a bottom-up alternative when paired with kind of a, a top-down slightly interventionist approach in trying to break up or constrain platforms, um, I think as a bias promises uh, mm -hmm. to yield, yield the most results. And again, not something I could imagine happening anywhere else in the world. I, I shouldn't say we're trying to uh, break up and restrain no. platforms. We'd just be happy to see, uh, see more competition. And exactly as you say, if you're responsible for startups policy, you see that startups in the AI area, for instance, the access to data question is one. You have a lot of issues dealing with 
real implementation of privacy or real implementation, for instance, of the general data protection regulation, where you have a data portability article, but which hasn't really been functioning and hasn't allowed real-time models of people being able to move their data for instance, again, I think all of us are preoccupied with the pandemic, but also with the climate challenge, which is one we, we shouldn't forget, or simply to get a, a, better, a better service. So this is where very much we see that both the AI could provide processing and, how to say, a better result with the data, but blockchain or other you know, decentralized methods could allow more control by the citizen and the consumer, which could be both good for the marketplace, but also good for people in general because they can realize their autonomy better, get a better service, have more choice, but something that has to always be underlined, that it has to be easy for the individual. It can't be people having to read uh, tens of pages of terms and conditions and going into many places and settings and checking them every day, which is a little bit the conundrum you get today that people say, well, nobody cares about uh, privacy, but then to actually try to control it, it is so burdensome and difficult to do. I mean, with the tools that the marketplace has, has provided, um, that this is really waiting for something like a smart contract for an ecosystem where people can control um, what is done with data on their individual instruments or, you know, in other parts of their lives. So this is something we see very interesting from a, a market perspective and also from a, uh, a policy perspective. So I've seen you've been doing a lot of work around self-sovereign identity and SSI. And obviously there is a kind of linkage there between GDPR. You know, some some people are struggling to understand how you can how you can have certain things happen in a decentralized manner um, versus a centralized manner around around data in the context of GDPR and perhaps that GDPR w was designed at a time that couldn't take into account blockchains. I don't know if you have a, a perspective on that. I think, but maybe just to close off, I, I really like this portability piece because I think you know. For me, when we're talking about Web3, the, 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 the building blocks for that is what I call sovereign software, um, something that restores, maintains the sovereignty of the user, user citizen, um, or extends it, actually. But that all starts with that portability, the idea that if I can, can take control of my identity and then its associated assets, starting with data, but that could be anything, any other digital asset. Um, and I can easily move it around, that, that fundamentally breaks the model of today's web and many of the things that we, we don't necessarily like to see in it. And I, I can only agree with you, and this is why in the uh, European blockchain services infrastructure, which is something that uh, the 29 European countries are, are, are building together, which is going to start really launching this year, not piloting, but I think with the uh, audit documents pub uh, publication, it'll launch this year. One of the other use cases, which probably won't launch full rollout this year because it's more complicated, is a self-sovereign identity. And it really is the key to users' digital autonomy, self-determination, management of, of the data. And so it's something we see is, is necessary and also to have a conception of uh, identity, which is probably more appropriate for the times we live in. 
this is not simply this is me, so I have the right to register for this public service, as you do with or to cross a border. Um, but this is me in a broad sense. This is my my CV. This is my sporting experiences or climate footprint, other things that I need to bring together. Health health records, again, very relevant uh, relevant today. So, uh, I mean, there's full uh, full agreement on this, that this is this is the key. And ideally, it also fits with our philosophy of empowering the individual, which is also a uh, very much a fundamental part of, uh, of EU law that already since uh, the times of some of the most famous uh, court cases of uh, Angen and Luz and others, um, the individual was able to go and enforce uh, the EU law in his or her national national courts. And this was the second level of, of enforcement. So, I mean, it's also philosophically built into the system. And then you mentioned GDPR, which, I mean, it is, I would say, a challenge for us because it was, and this is us, the, the whole community, as well as uh, the policymakers, because it was adopted during a time where more people were looking about the platforms and the uh, siloed sources of data. But I think it's too pessimistic to look at the law as not being able, especially where it's principle-based law, to progress and be applied to, to new new paradigms. So in these areas, I mean, we had a report of the EU Blockchain Observatory and Forum, which is also a think tank working for us and for, for our unit, which has a, a lot of interesting reports and workshops online, which uh, people can look into. Um, but we had one on GDPR. And there they were saying, I mean, there's not a blockchain that is or is not GDPR compliant as such, just as there's a platform that's not by its nature GDPR compliant. It's the applications running on it, what is done with the data, what kinds of data. So, I mean, we're very much convinced that you can have a GDPR compliant blockchain in terms of implementing the principles. It's a little bit difficult, but I mean, this has happened in the past when, you know, there was a move from horses to, to cars. Now we'll move to electric cars. We'll move to autonomous cars, which I mean, require perhaps some changes in the legislation, but it's never been the case that all the legislation in, in the countries or, you know, as we move into modern times, the European level has had to be thrown out. So the law can progress. It's also um, the role of the courts. I mean, more creatively open in the common law countries than in the civil law countries, but there still is an interpretation interpretation aspect. Yeah. So that's interesting in that uh, it, it can accommodate new paradigms. And of course, you know, Technology is only going to accelerate as it as it comes to us. So, um, the, its ability to evolve and, as you say, in some instances, in, interpret intent a, a little bit more strongly than uh, exactly any one particular uh, implementation. And, and what is the current thinking around DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations? So this is this is uh, an area which, to be honest with you, I. I stopped thinking about for some time. It's always felt too distant and slightly introspective. You know, it, it's a thing that only uh, only people in crypto think that they need. But in, increasingly, it's caught my attention again. I've been revisiting the, the technology stacks that have, have now been built and also some efforts to marry what happens on chain with 
uh, or it's embed or bridge into some jurisdictions. So I think recently there was uh, something called the Lao, which was a, a Wyoming-based, um, as far as I can remember, entity. So, you know, is this on the radar at the moment? I mean, you've got a lot on. Is it something that's being actively explored? You know, the idea that there could be a an entity that is uh, that exists on chain where people can presumably pool value. Uh, I don't want to say assets necessarily, but value could be data. They could uh, own that data and they could, or, or that, that value, and they could set the terms for its usage. Is this is something that's deemed relevant now? Well, no, it's, it's something we've been following since the first DAO and uh, like with other things in the blockchain in the uh, decentralized digital area. We haven't seen the need to, to rush in um, I think the first problem with uh, with the first famous DAO was also something that I think uh, was interesting for all of us to to learn from. We have a positive attitude to them. Again, innovation um, along with the, how to say, maybe just semi-decentralized uh, multi-level EU governance blockchain that I mentioned, uh, the EU blockchain um, uh, services infrastructure. We're also interested in uh, enabling the very decentralized at individual level blockchains in Europe so they can they can take off and that it's an area that uh, can be an area of European innovation. In the case of the DAOs, it's been seen again as being too early to rush in and put a, a legal framework on it. And in fact, we've had a lot of discussion with legal experts coming from from the different member states. And I mean, I don't want to pronounce because we don't have a official legal opinion, but a lot of the thinking is that at least as a legal construct, this is not so new. It's actually something that you could say it's a, it's a partnership, which some people don't like because of the possibility of maybe unlimited liability in a partnership. Again, depending the way that it's set up. So you can also set up a, a partnership in, in, in other ways. Um, so Interestingly, we are set up as a partnership at Outlier. So uh, this is why we, we have an affinity towards, um, uh, towards the DAO. Yeah. So, I mean, also, so you do have a lot of thinking and these are people who are familiar with the technology. I mean, legal experts who we talk to that, okay, I mean, this is simply a, a partnership. I mean, maybe at some point there is something that is specific enough. And if we want to enable something specifically in the market, there could be a justification for, for specific legislation. Um, but it's, it's not a corporation uh, unless again, it's set up as one and you go, you jump through those legal hoops, but uh, seemingly the ones that would be just set up with a group of people who could be defined as partners, it would be uh, it would be a partnership. Again, not any official legal opinion, but this is the direction that a lot of the, the legal thinking is going in. So if people in the community think differently and think either for reasons of uh, DAOs taking off uh, in order to achieve such and such an industrial policy goal, um, you would need a, a specific uh, legal personality. I mean, this is something we're always open to hear. And of course, it has to be justified. As I mentioned, with the, the digital assets, we have to go through something that's called an impact assessment. We have to show that this really is a problem 
that uh, these things are not able to take off across borders in Europe because of such and such impediments. So there we're, we're at a definitely a time where thinking about it, it's uh, positive thoughts towards uh, this type of, of body of a DAO, um, but there is not a move to, to legislate on this yet. And if this is, this may be taken as positive or negative, depending on where the, <laughs> where, the, where the listener is. Well, I mean, I think people will just be reassured that you're thinking about it. You have yeah. been thinking about it for a long time. And, you know, as, as you said at the very beginning, this idea that you are you know, pro-innovation. So look, I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours. Hopefully I will get to see you again in person at some point uh, in, in, in soon. Maybe I'll get you back on again um, uh, later in the year, but it was great to chat to you again. Thank you for all the good work you're doing there. And I'm going to try and get crypto pop trending on Twitter after this <laughs> goes out. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to overlap with uh, Christian Carlo, I guess, his crypto dad. So, but I guess crypto pop would be uh, would be still open. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So, Very yeah, good. Great, great to talk to you, Jamie. And thank you for all the great work you're doing. And you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.